listens to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's episode is with Suzanne and Enneagram 2, Tori Hope Peterson. Today, they're going to talk a lot about foster care and adoption. In the back half of the show, they even run down some things for each Enneagram number to think about when considering adopting or becoming a foster parent. You can find Tori on Instagram at Tori Hope Peterson, and Peterson is with all ease. And be sure to check out bringbeloved.org. If you're already online checking out bringbeloved.org, might as well jump on over to lifeinthetrinityministry.com. We've got two more Enneagram Daily Reflection books from the series with InterVarsity Press, Enneagram 1s and 4s, new sets of prayer beads, new content on our subscription service, The Table, the Reverend is adding guided meditations to the forum, and oh man, he, he's got a gift. He's got a voice and a gift. Multiple gifts, but this one is the one I'm talking about right now. One final plug. I hate to do it, but I'm chomping at the bit to get it out there. So here's the biggest tease in the world. Mark your calendars and save the date for an incredibly wonderful three-day event that's going to be here in Dallas. It's August the 5th through the 7th. That's a Thursday night and then all day Friday, all day Saturday. Suzanne, Joe, and a very incredibly special third teacher, who you all know, will be teaching an advanced Enneagram event. We're hammering down some of the final details, and we'll post the event as soon as we have them. But go ahead and mark the spots in your calendar. Be sure to follow LTM and Suzanne on social media, so you'll know immediately when it's available. It's going to be really, really incredible. Now, let's meet Tori read um, The Road Back to You, and that is actually how I came to find my Enneagram number. And so it's just such an honor to be here. Thank you. My name is Tori. Um, As you said, I grew up in the foster care system. I first entered when I was four, and then I was reunified with my mom, and I lived with her until I was 12. Then I lived in, I think, if I remember right, 12 different foster homes until I emancipated when I turned 18. And that is a a huge part of me is my foster care journey because like our family backgrounds have a great impact on us. And so I just can't leave it out. But um, more than that, I am a disciple and I'm a child of God. And that covers over any foster care identity, race identity, any other identity that people might see from the outside. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I remember um, I, as an adopted child at birth, my dad delivered me and then took me home. And uh, they were really great parents and I am still adopted. And they really wanted me and my birth mother still didn't want me. You know. It's, it's, it's two things can be true when you talk about adoption and fostering. And if you can't embrace that two things are true, I don't know where healing comes from and all that. I remember being in school, you know, whatever grade they do, uh, genetic background. It's like, I, I don't know what to put. And then you go to the doctor mm. and they want your medical history. And I don't know what to put. You know, it's, it doesn't matter how I'm 70 and there are still things that I deal with. And 
I'm, I'm just so excited about you because you're so honest, but at the same time, so positive. I have a little exercise that I use with people who are kind of struggling. And I say, well, I think you need to tell your story to somebody that you really trust. It'll take about 90 minutes because first you tell your story with you as the victim. And then you turn right around and tell your story with you as the victor. And that's kind of the life you live as far as I can see. So you, mm, you talk yeah. about any of that that you want to. Yeah. I, and the idea that you cannot be an adoptee, you cannot be a former foster youth and not hold the idea that two things can live in this two very different things um, can live in the same place. My birth mom, she did want me. She loved me. She loved me and loves me right now so much. But her mental illness, um, she was diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia when I was, I think, 12. Or maybe that's just when I noticed. You know, you, you never really know with memory what you know and what you don't. But when I was 12 was definitely when I realized that my mom had been diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia. And she took medication for it. She was on disability for it. She didn't go to work. And she wanted me, but it was like her mental illness. She couldn't help but do the things that she did. And that's when the abuse and the neglect would so quickly manifest um, when she would become hurtful and harmful to me and my sister. And I was, when I went to the foster care system, I was relieved as much as I loved my mom and I knew my mom loved me. What we had been going through in the home, mostly there was physical abuse, but the verbal abuse was what was just un unbearable. My mom is very volatile and she just says what's on her mind. Um, she speaks before she thinks and that that it can be very hurtful of course that's why it's biblical that we not do it <laughs> yeah. so yeah when when I went to the foster care system it was such a relief because I thought I am going to have like a normal family and this is going to be my chance for me and my sister to live a good life where we're not being called names we're not being abused day in and day out and then that's not what happened at all. My sister and I were separated after I had reported abuse that my sister had reported to me. Um, that abuse was not investigated properly and I was deemed a liar. And I moved to a group home and that was devastating because of course my sister didn't come to the group home with me. And I remember when they told me that we were gonna leave, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go get my sister's stuff. And they're like, no, your sister's staying here. And I just, it felt like the whole house. I mean, it was a huge house. Foster parents have huge houses because they house a lot of kids. It was this huge house and it felt like the walls were just closing in on me. But I had to act strong. I had to act like everything was going to be okay. Like I had to hold everything together. And so I did. And I went to the group home and there was a lot of good that came out of that group home. That was the first time that I had had any professional counseling and I, you know, when you're 12, 13, you don't realize that you need professional counseling. And I know sometimes people are like, I don't want to be made to go to counseling, but being made to go to counseling was what made me aware of all of the hurt and all of the trauma that I had faced and then being around. So in the group home, I lived with nine other 
young women. And it was like seeing them made me realize that hurt people hurt people. We hear that all the time, but healed people heal people. And this was an opportunity for me to start my healing process so that I could be an active, proactive healer. There's victim and victor right there. Like it's all just right there. Um, tell everybody how you got just briefly. So how'd you figure out your number and how do you think your number was affected by the reality of your adolescence and young adulthood? Yeah. So I got, I found the book, the road back to you in one of those free little libraries. My husband, he works in Hudson, Wisconsin sometimes and Hudson, Wisconsin is where the free little libraries were founded. So like every other house has a little library. It's really cool. So I found your book and I started reading it. Um, and that, I mean, that was really it. I read it and I identified very, very much with the two and the four. And it was very hard for me. I identify most with being a, a two. Yep. Um, I think how being a two has come of me. Well, my mom, so my mom is a three wing two. And I, you know, I grew up the majority of my life with my mom and she, she always encouraged achievement. Um, um, I felt like I identified with the four as well, but the two, it was the thing that kind of always stuck with me and the motivation of just wanting to love and wanting to be the helper. When I was a little girl, my mom always, she glorified achievement very much. And she always told me, you're, you're a good helper. And she always praised helping. I think that had a lot to do with it. And then I think when I went to the foster care system, that only like emphasized it all because you know, twos have this desire to be loved and accepted. And when you're entering into a foster home, that's what you're trying to do. You don't want to keep moving home to home and you want some family to love and accept you. That's what I wanted. I just wanted someone to say, you're going to stay here. And no matter what you do, we're going to keep you here. And so to try and make that happen, I think I would just conform to you know, what the, what the foster family was or what they wanted. But I have felt like I have had to be very aware of that. Like, am I being the person that people want me to be? Or am I being the person that God has called me to be? And that's a really hard thing for me to, I think, day in and day out for me to discern because I think sometimes it feels like in being the person that someone might be wanting me to be like presenting myself well and loving them well and helping is who God wants me to be. Like he's given me this gift to love and to help. um, But I know I have to be weary of it because I can extend myself too far very easily. Yeah, that's so too. It's so too. So here's my, here's Mm -hmm. my three questions you can start to ask yourself. Why am I approaching this person? What, if anything, do I expect to get in return? Does the other person want my help? And if you ask those questions, then when you reach my age, you won't look back and say, 
you know, I probably spent about 20 years worth of energy helping people who didn't want my help. So that, put that in your pocket. So I, I, I listened to one of your podcast ones. I think it was a podcast. I've read a lot of your stuff, <laughs> listened to a lot of your stuff. I think it was a podcast and you asked the question, what is mine to have and what is not mine to have? And so that is the question I often ask myself and I'm very grateful for that question. <laughs> yeah. My other question is, what is mine to do? Mike? What? Yes. What is mine to do? What is what mine is to do? not mine to do? Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's a thing. So I'm a pastor's wife. Uh, but not perfectly suited for it. You know, I'm, I'm a little feisty and, you know, stuff. And I read one of your posts and took it straight to Joe and said, finally, somebody has given me permission to be my brand of a pastor's wife. And he mm -hmm. loves my brand of a pastor's wife. But, you know, it's a, it's a big thing for Joe and me right now at 70 and 73 to say uh, we need to be learning from younger people. This idea that all the learning is supposed to come from the olds to the youngs is a, it's just a bad idea because there's so much we don't know that you do and that Joel knows and that our other adult children know. And so I, I think the teaching voice that you have, that you, you have found a very sweet spot where you really challenge things and you get away with it. And that's because you're a two. I get away with a lot. I get away with a lot. And you do too. Like most, any other number, any other number who held a book that people are all thinking is the best with thumbs down, mm. with thumbs down, any other number would get in a lot of trouble. And I saw that and I thought, I wonder why. Because I too thought that that book was um, tricky for me. I was sexually abused mm -hmm. as a foreign exchange student along with being adopted. And that book was mm -hmm. tricky for me. Yeah. So I'm just saying. Yeah, and I never, anyone, no one has said it. And I felt like there was something wrong with me. Like I hadn't, have I not dealt with my trauma? Have I not dealt with my healing? It's like, no, these are natural, natural reactions because that book is very, very explicit in its description. Yes, it is. Can y'all fill me in? What book are we talking about? I'm sorry. I didn't see this post. <laughs> the Body Keeps a Score and it is a book. Um, my wife has On it. mostly like PTSD, psychology, um, and people love this book. They swear by it, that it has helped them with mental illness, um, with better knowing their psychology and all those things. And it, I think the beginning of the book, like maybe the first chapter, really good introduction if you know very little about psychology, if you know very little about PTSD. But then the next chapters go just really deep into um, just very descriptive abuse, like just very descriptive abuse and violence on children and women and people. And it's, if you've experienced that, it's very hard to read and not be triggered. Yep. Yes. And I, I, I do believe triggers can be 
a healthy thing on the side of there, there's a trigger, but on the side of every trigger is God's healing. It's an invitation to realize, okay, I've been triggered. There's still trauma there. There's still healing that needs to be done, but there's a difference between that and like explicitly actively triggering, triggering ourselves. Um, by reading something that's going to continuously give us flashbacks when, um, when it's, it's titled to help, but it's not actually helping. Yeah. Yeah. That would have to be uh, Joel's wife. Whitney is a therapist and she uses it, but she uses it in the context of being a therapist with a client. Right. Which is a whole different. And we have a billion books. I'm just, now I want to talk to her about it because we have, a, we have a bunch of books that we, we don't like, but we've bought the books. When you put together your story as a two with a move to four when you're feeling secure, you know, twos um, adapt. We don't, uh, you know, like nines merge, which would be, that's like half of adapting. You know, they go along with you, but they stay who they are. And we try to change who we are in order for that to be a good thing for you or change what we want in order for it to fit the story. The eightness in you in terms of justice really shows itself. So you want to talk about a few things that you feel need some addressing in relationship to justice, like maybe education for foster kids, higher education. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to start. I, <laughs> I, I do have a lot of questions. I don't know where to start either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do have a lot of eight in me. And I think that has naturally come just because I've seen a lot of injustices at face value. Um, I've seen abuse in, foster homes. I've seen foster families get paid, um, you know, to take care of children and they're actually doing more harm. Um, justice in terms of that is that there needs to be, there needs to not be a conflict of interest with caseworkers. So caseworkers, they work on behalf of the child, but they also work on behalf of biological families and foster families and the state. And so caseworkers just have way too much on their plates. And then most foster youth, they get what's called a GAL, guardian ad litem or a CASA, which is a court appointed special advocate. And that CASA, their job description is to advocate for what is in the best interest of the child. But they're not allowed in most states, they're not mandated reporters and they're not allowed to be a part of investigations of abuse and neglect. And they're only, they're, they're minimally supposed to visit like the child, much less than caseworkers. And so then you really don't have someone working on, on behalf of the child, what's in the best interest of the child. Um, Cause the people who are doing that don't get to see the child as often. They don't get to be in the nitty gritty when they need to be. And that's, that's when abuse and neglect get brushed under the table. And these foster parents continue to get, paid to quote unquote, take care of children. I think that's, that's probably the biggest, the biggest grievance that I would have, the biggest injustice that hurts my heart 
What do you think the solution is? Uh, I think um, the church really needs to be okay with being uncomfortable. And I'm not saying every person in the church needs to be a foster parent. Um, That's not the case, but I do think that every person in the church needs to be involved in foster care and adoption to some capacity, whether that's, you know, a foster and adopted parent and you bring them a meal once a month or once every two months, or you are a psychiatrist or, you know, there's so many of those outside helper roles that we don't um, think of, or like you make a podcast and you're giving a former foster youth a voice. You know, we have to, I think, extend what it means to help the foster care community and say it's more than being a foster parent and then looking at our gifts, what God has given us and saying, how can I give those to this community? Mm-hmm. Like what's mine to do? What's mine to do? and What's not mine to do? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. And, and it doesn't mean that like we just give, we just give those gifts, you know, God sacrificed, Jesus sacrificed. And so I think sometimes we just get really complacent and we forget that we need to sacrifice. We need to be uncomfortable and vulnerable in the work that we're doing. I, so just this week, we got a call for a sibling group of three. And I'm currently writing my memoir. I signed a, a book deal with Lifeway. And the deadline's making me a little anxious. <laughs> and we got a call for a sibling group of three. And I was like, how am I going to get this book done? How, like, my life is just going to be flipped upside down if I say yes. But then, like, in my heart, I knew, like, there was something that was telling me, the Holy Spirit was telling me, like, this is right. You need to say yes. And the thing that drove me and my husband to say yes is the fact that we are not called to live comfortable lives where we're not sacrificing like Jesus did. I want to go a little deeper. All right. And you get to say, I don't know, or I don't want to talk about that. But what happens when in fostering or adoption, families that have biological children that are their responsibility and in fostering or adoption end up with a child who needs more than they have to offer, who um, is a threat in some way to the other children, who, you know, it's like, and I don't know the answer to the question. So Parker Palmer, if you've never read Parker Palmer, you, you need to read Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. You will eat the pages. You will eat it up. Parker Palmer says that we need to ask honest questions. And that's questions that we don't know the answer to and that are not manipulative. So this is an honest question. I don't, I don't know the answer. But in my work with uh, families, particularly families who have, adopt, have foreign adoptions, there has been a lot of pain and nobody to help. And in my work Mm -hmm. in talking about adoption and fostering and the Enneagram, I run into people who say, can you help me? Because we are fostering a child that is 
not good for the rest of our family. And the mm -hmm. church said we should do it, but now the church won't help us with the resources to do it right. I know what you mean. You can say pray, but what about do? Um, yeah, I think that is a super hard question because, you know, the church, I think, preaches adoption because that's what God does to us. He takes us, he makes us his daughters and his sons. You know, we are not, we aren't orphans because he loves. I think we have to notice that we have to just come to the fact that we are not God. Um, we are limited. And it's hard because I think I'm going to have to say, um, maybe in the, like in the situation where a foster child or an adopted child is, you know, maybe abusing a biological child. I think you would have to put your biological child first. Um, and this is where the reality of after counseling, after, you know, all of the resources that have been given, that maybe an adoption does have to be severed. Um, and that's really hard because, of course, no, you wouldn't do that for a biological child. If a biological child was abusing the adoptive child, you would, of course, keep your biological child. Um, but I think there's something in the God has given us this. We can naturally, biologically, birth. This is very controversial. Birth children. Um, those children are undoubtedly ours. We are responsible for them. Um, that's just, if we want to preserve family, we have to say that. And I think if there's an adoption happening where we realize that we are limited and there's more harm being caused than good, then isn't it wise to, to maybe do the very worst thing that an adopting parent would, would not want to do? Um, I, thank you for that. I um, am so embarrassed to say what I'm about to say, like, and Joel is going to leave it in there. So I'm just going for public embarrassment right now. It never occurred to me in the churches that we've served, where are the church communities that we know about where there are families with adoption? It, it never occurred to me to suggest to the pastor or to Joe as the pastor, that they should just send out a note and say, you know, I don't know what your skills are and what your gifts are, but we need a lot. We need therapists. We need babysitters. We need dinner once in a while. When we have a bunch of kids, we need some help. We need a lot. So we're not asking you to foster or adopt, but, you know, would you like to sign up to help? Can I get a lasagna? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that never occurred to me. And it's going in an email today to our church. It doesn't occur to a lot of people. And that's why I always say on any podcast, I have the opportunity to talk on. I say, you do not have to be a foster parent to help this community because that's what all the billboards say. They make us think that. So you really shouldn't be embarrassed because they make us think that that's the only option. Yep. And I think it is the church that does yep. need to say, 
because like the, the government, the social services, they're the ones who saying the only option is to be a foster parent. So the church does need to take responsibility and say, actually, there are other options and we're going to make those options right here available for you. Yep. Yep. All of them, financial help, babysitting, therapy, medical care, like that. I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a journey now. Um, you're such a I love two. it. You're such a two. <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> because, because you think in terms of relationship, it's how you think. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Relationships are everything to me. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> and we're the only number that that's true about. And so it becomes how we think. And it's like, here's how you could be in relationship and here's how you could and here's how you could. Like, yeah, that's it. Um, I'll tell you something so crazy. Okay. Okay. So um, my husband's, I don't know if this should be in the podcast or not, but I just have to tell you. My husband's girlfriend from high school reached out to me and she was like, hey, would you want to go out to dinner with me? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I told other people that I went out to dinner with her and they were like, Tori, that's crazy. And I was like, why? Like, she wants to be my friend and I'm okay with like, that's in the past. We can be friends today. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's a, it, it, it's just tunis. I, I would love for my wife to get that phone call. <laughs> the hell I would have to pay. And she so it's like she was probably just thinking the same way that I was exactly you know yep yep that's that's yeah that's tricky (laughs) um (laughs) um on your Instagram page I think you have your days in foster care numbered You, you know you don't say like four plus years you say what is it 1500 something something 1544 and that was the second time I don't know how many days I was in the first time I couldn't find the court papers from the first time yeah so tell me um I'm I went straight to my calculator to find out how many years that was math's not my (laughs) 4.2. 4.2. I can tell you what it is. It's 4.2. Interesting numbers. Yeah, there's this trend on, I posted that post because there's this trend on social media where foster youth or former foster youth, they put, I was in foster care for so many days and then I was adopted. And it just makes it seem like foster care is very linear. And it also makes it seem like adoption is the end all be all. Like once we're adopted, we're healed. And I just wanted to make it apparent that that's not the case. Because I think so often there are these foster youth, they're like, I just want to be adopted. And it's like, that's a really beautiful goal. Like it is, it's a really beautiful aspiration to want, like to want to be adopted. But adoption is not what's going, Adopt earthly adoption is not what's going to heal us. It's healing is what's going to heal us. And that healing comes from being spiritually adoptive. And I also think that just this, this trend just creates this idea that everything in foster care is so linear. And for people who are not in the foster care community, they just think, oh, kids are in foster care for 
so many days and then they get adopted. No big deal. And it's like, no, there are a lot of foster youth who age out of the foster care system with no family. There are many foster youth who have went in and out of the foster care system multiple times and they can never know how many days they've been in because they can't just look at one piece of paper. It's because it's been a million pieces of court papers. And so I just wanted to really emphasize like this is not linear and this is not the end all be all. Yeah, I. Um, it's so interesting to me how many people who don't, who haven't experienced uh, fostering or step parenting or adoption, who have all this uh, image of how, how you can just wrap it up with a bow and all is well. When I was a little girl, my, uh, my dad was a doc in the town where I lived and everybody loved my parents. I mean, loved them. And they had had biological sons and adopting me was kind of a surprise. And as a little girl, everybody always told me how lucky I was. You're the luckiest little girl. You're so lucky to be with Doc and Sue. You're so lucky you're not in an orphanage. You're so lucky. You're so lucky. And I went through almost all of my first 18 years, never being angry or mad at them about anything because I was so lucky. Right. And that's not healthy. That like I went through adolescence without being particularly like I didn't do the rebellious things that probably would have made me a better person. I balanced it out when I got the chance. (laughs) You made up for me. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. So I love the fact that you uh, are not trying to put a bow on everything. Yeah, and that goes back to right what we said in the beginning is like, there are, you can have two different feelings. There can be two different, very different ideas living in the same place. I think I also got that a lot. I think all adoptees do oh you're so lucky I think we all get that um and I think you know it's both yes I am so fortunate but also actually the circumstances are so unfortunate at the same time and that's okay it's both yeah Suzanne and Joe's workshops they're great everywhere they go so that's that's the first qualifier great workshops we've had the opportunity two or three times that I've been there where the weekend of a big anagram workshop, a handful of people have questions around adoption and foster care. And either during lunch on the Saturday or even on a Sunday after the workshop's over, for a couple hours it'll be like a little mini get-together where they have had the opportunity to sit down with with my mom and and talk about that and ask questions and... Uh, a lot of times it's couples that are there together to just kind of get feedback. And the biggest thing that always catches me that I, if y'all don't mind, if I know I'm springing this on both of you, I didn't prepare a mom for this either. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> We're good. People don't know, you know, it, it's the billboard that says you have to adopt, adopt and be a foster parent or and or whatever it is and it's the church saying you got to do it and it's people with good hearts and good intentions but they have they have questions and hesitations if you will 
we hardly ever, especially on this podcast, do a rundown of the nine numbers. But if you think it's appropriate, could y'all together talk about, mom, you talk about the anagram number. If for each number, just kind of what is the something that you need to think about or have feelings about or bring up when going through that process? Uh, a big thing, just to give an example. That's good. Okay. Yeah. A, a big thing that, as, as an example, that I've heard a couple times were um, husbands or wives or spouses or partners who were Enneagram fives who were really concerned about the energy that they could give. And, you know, and they mm -hmm. hadn't put a voice to that and hadn't kind of talked about that until that space with these groups where they got to, it kind of came up after an anagram workshop where they kind of had that freedom to do that. So if y'all have the time, space, energy, knowledge, wisdom to kind of, kind of talk about that, I, I think it'd be a really great gift. I'll start and you, uh, follow me on each number. How about that? All right. Because for ones, it is so important to uh, do things perfectly or as perfectly as they can because of that inner critic that tells them they're terrible and they don't do things right and they don't do things well. Um, I would suggest that expecting perfection in method of parenting, biological children, foster children or adopted children is an expectation you'd have to get over before you are going to have any peace trying all that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I would second that in the idea of um, the foster care and adoption process. It's never what people expect um, when you start fostering. Oftentimes it's like, oh yeah, this is a child that is expected to adopt, but then their case can go on much longer than you ever expected or um, a, a kinship or family can come in the picture and end up, you know, getting custody of the child. And so just being open to that, the, the circumstances are always changing and it's probably never going to look like you expected. Yep. Yep. You know, it occurs to me with this whole thing I'm learning from you that we could just announce to the whole church, please fill out this form that tells us what you feel like you have to offer. So then when people yeah. want to um, adopt, then people who are uh, discerning with them or foster would be able to say, well, like, do you think this is yours to do or is this yours to do? So that people who want to give something but haven't discerned well whether or not they should contribute or they should be the primary family, that would make it a much easier question for people who feel called to do something for children who need a home. Yeah, and that's what the two, look, we just right, went right into the two without even saying it. Yes, we did. Because that would definitely be what the two should say and evaluate. I, when I read the, so I read 40 days of being a two and 40 days of being a three. Um, I, I, I didn't identify with the three very much. And that's 
really how I felt like I was a two because I cried like three times while reading the the two book. Um, but in that he says, it is a relief that I do not have to be the savior because I already have a savior. And so I think that's what the two, the two would have to really hone in on when they went to the foster care realm adoption realm is like, this is not about saving. This is about what the Bible says, taking care of the widow and the orphan, not saving the widow and the orphan. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, let's talk about threes for a minute. I think, I think adoption, birthing, all of that can like just child rearing in any sense can come off as an achievement. Yep. So I think just simply identifying very quickly is wanting to be involved in this way, um, an achievement, something that I would want people to praise me for, or am I doing this, you know, am I doing this for the right reasons? Am I doing this for myself or for the children? Yep. Who thought we were going to need me on this conversation, Joel? Um, Fours are uh, so complex, the most complex number. And they, uh, if they aren't careful, they are defined by what they feel all the time. With no thinking and no doing, they just allow feelings to define them. And um, they have a big heart. You know, twos feel what other people feel. But fours are able, when they connect to somebody, to feel the depth that people feel. So fours would be inclined to foster or adopt based on the depth of the feelings of the children or the depth of the plea from the church or fours have a lot of gifts that would be great. And they would have some challenges because they're the only number on the Enneagram that can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. Mm. And I'm guessing from what I've learned and from what I learned from you that as a foster child, it'd be great for somebody to know and be mindful of your pain, but you also need a little help fixing some of it. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say you're spot on. Okay. Four. My experience with fives, uh, particularly five, single five women who adopt children, is that they get in a, a, a world of hurt with not having enough physical energy to manage all of the affection that the children desire. Yeah, I would definitely say the same thing. Physical energy, emotional energy, all of the energy with a five. Um, just, um, And that's where if you were going to go into the foster care community, the adoption community, making sure that you have a community as a five. I think the five would have to have a community wrapped around them um, and they would have to know how to communicate often what they need 
almost like, and I think a two would need that too. Twos are bad at asking for help, but especially a five because they would naturally have less energy. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing in terms of twos, the last thing a foster child needs or an adopted child is a, woe is me. I give you so much. I'm exhausted. You know, that how we get when we've given all we've got and we're doing stuff that isn't ours Mm -hmm. to do. Messy. Mm -hmm. Quick question. So let's say that we've got a five and we've got a two who have not together, but fives and twos that are members of the church community. And this podcast has helped open the church's eyes that they have the flyer. Are are those fives and twos going to ask for the help? And if not, if they are, then super. If not, then how does, how do we reach out to the people who aren't coming to you for the help? You know, you put it out there, but they're not, you know, they're self-sufficient. They're proud, whatever. I don't, um, I don't mean, I don't want this to be a knock, but it's going to sound like a knock. Um, I think the twos and the fives who are self-aware will ask for help. There you go. 100%. Because they will know that, um, and, um, you know, maybe that's just what they need to hear. You know, that in as it is, when you ask for help, you're a more self-aware person. And I think you're a more humble person um, because you realize that you can't do it all. You can't be the savior and you don't have all the energy and that's okay. And that's why God has given us the gift of the body of the church. Yeah. And I also think um, church communities who learn the appropriate language um, and maybe someday um, because Tori's voice is in the world. uh foster systems, fostering systems will ask a lot of questions about, do you have a community to help you raise this child? And, you know, is the community in agreement that they're going to support you when you need it? And I, I think um, it's interesting to me how people in churches make so many assumptions about what's happening in other people's houses and how either how great they are or how terrible they are without ever asking any mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would love to see more, more community involvement when a family in a church uh, is fostering. I'd really think that would be so good for everybody, for everybody. Yeah. All right. Six. Sixes. You know, my guess is a lot of foster parents are sixes. I was just about to say that. I think so too. Yeah, just to, you know, stick with youth even in the hardest of situations and stick with biological parents, you know, and see them as not so often. I think foster parents and the foster care community can villainize bio parents. Um, and I think sixes would be just, they wouldn't do that. I think they would see bio parents as they are and want to help them as they are. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as a six, the thing that they would probably have to guard against the most would be, um, just worry like that because, because the foster care system is so, and adoption is just so 
up and down and you never, you can't predict what's going to happen. Um, and with that, I think sixes would have to guard against the idea that like the worst is going to happen. Well said. Uh, at the same time, sixes are the most concerned about the common good. So that would be my way of saying what you just said in terms of sixes would want to make space for the best of bio parents and they would have room for kids and they would be um, willing to be equipped to offer kids what they needed. You know, sixes, once they trust you, they're pretty teachable. And um, I, I think they'd be willing to learn more about how to foster better or about how to parent better. Mm-hmm. Sevens. Well, my husband has, my, my husband's an eight, but he has a lot of seven in him. And I think the thing that he has to guard against the most is just like, he wants to do his thing. Like, so he flips furniture a lot and he finds that very very fun and so I think he would have to he he has to be like okay I can't like always be doing the fun thing mm-hmm. I can't always be doing like my leisurely thing mm-hmm. um because I have to like step up and parent and serve yeah and I think uh added to that it might uh when Joel Joel's a seven and when he was a child, he was going to have a whole bunch of kids and they were going to all be boys and they were going to all, you know, play football. And I was very young. He was very young. He was very young. He, and he now has three girls and a boy and um, he's a really good dad to all of them. But having said all of that, I think there is an imaginary world about adopting and an imaginary world about fostering that really has to be quelled. If, it's going to work. It's like it, what you imagine and what's going to happen are probably not the same thing. Just to throw in kind of talked about self-awareness for twos and fives, having kids, having kids is hard, like, and super sad sometimes. So to give an example, we just switched Josephine, our two-year-old to a different daycare, a much better one. It's better for her, but she, you know, she's never been there before. And I took her one day. I had to take her multiple days again because of self-awareness, but without self-awareness never would have gone again. And I did make the joke afterwards, you know, and she's screaming, crying, daddy, don't go, you know, losing it. And the school handled it perfectly and told me to just get out of there (laughs) that I'm not helping the situation. I didn't think about those things before I had kids. You don't know to think about them, probably. There's so much you don't know to think about. I I just think Seven's imaginations. It's it's all going to be great. That kid's going to love me. I'm going to love this kid. It is all going to work out great. That's right. Yeah. And they're going to love the same things I love. and want to do the things I want to do. Yeah, all that. All that. (laughs) You have anything to add to that, Tori? No, that was good, Joel. Yeah. All right. Well, you're living with an eight foster parent, so you go. Um, eights. I mean, it just all revolves around the control thing, like that you can't be in control of like what's going to happen. 
I, I read a quote once I read about eights a lot because I want to have a good marriage. And something that I read was eights do not wish to be in control. They just do not want to be controlled. You wrote that? Oh, I did. Thank, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, and that is my husband's spot on. He doesn't want to be the boss of all the things. Like he just really doesn't want to be told what to do. He just doesn't yeah. want to be bossed around. Um, and I think when you are fostering and adopting, there's just a lot of like outside influences on your life. Like today I got a call from a caseworker and she was like, the bio mom wants to do a visit at one And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't do a visit at one Like I, I have work. Um, and like, it's the only time that the kids are all down napping. <laughs> so I was like, it's not happening, but we can move it to two 30 or three. And so I think with an eight, you just always have to be, you have to be willing to communicate like this cannot happen during this time or yes and no, but also willing to like change your, change your life a lot. Um, and know that like you can be in control of everything. There are a lot of caseworkers, they're not authority figures, but they do, it'd be weird to say authority figures, but just influences that are like, yeah, you're going to have to do this today. Yeah. 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 I can see a lot of pushback with that. All right. And the opposite of that is nines. And that would be, I think the first problem would be you can't merge with the kids and you can't just merge with the caseworker. You can't just merge with the system. You can't merge. You're going to have to stand independently and fight for what's right for you and your family and the foster child and all of it. And that's a lot for a nine to do. Yeah. And not everybody's going to be. I happy. think you're spot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. I wish I could hug you. Um, I wish we could have a long dinner, like we could cook together and then eat together and then do the dishes together. I uh, wish I'd known you sooner. Because we're too young. <laughs> I'm so happy to meet you. And I'm so grateful that with a house full of children, you were able to find some time to spend with us. And we're, we are going to do more. That's a, that's a thing from my side. If you're in, I'm in. I'm in. And I love you. And I'm so grateful that we know each other. Me too. Me too. Blessings, blessings. But real fast, can you plug things that are important to you uh, around all this and let people know where to go for information or a place or two to support or whatever? Yes. Um, My Instagram handle is Tori Hope Peterson. And it is S-E-N, not S-O-N. Um, my website is toryhopepeterson.com. And if you are looking for resources to be involved in the foster care realm outside of being a foster parent, I founded a nonprofit called Bring Beloved. And our mission is to bring every beloved home forever, um, whether that's with bio parents or whether that's being adopted. But we have a lot of resources for the church that they can. It's really just a bunch of other amazing nonprofits we have partnered with who are doing amazing work. 
um, just because of the platform I have. We have brought all of those organizations together um, in a place where people can see how to get involved and how they can help outside of just being a foster parent, outside of adopting. Awesome. That was perfect. I love you. I love you. I love you. I can't wait to hug you in person. Right up. Oh, it's right here waiting for you. Bye. Thank Bye. you so much, Dorothy.